Welcome to Grace Harvest Church's weekly podcast. For more information about Grace Harvest Church or to find out more about something you hear during the podcast, visit us online at graceharvestchurch.org. Now listen in and allow God to speak to you through this week's message. about Christmas, about Advent. Advent, if you're not familiar with that term, means the coming of Jesus to the earth. And uh, we are celebrating this time of the year, the first coming of Jesus, when he came to the earth 2,000 years ago. And our series is called Wonder, Light of the World. And we really want to talk to you about what it means to have wonder and awe this time of the year. To think about what is going on in our world? What is going on right now at this moment? And then maintain a sense of wonder. My message today is really about the fact that Jesus is heaven coming to earth. Heaven come down in the person of Jesus Christ. And I want to start with a story from a guy named Steve DeWitt uh, in an article called Eyes Wide Open, Enjoying God in Everything. He writes this. He says, author Philip Yancey describes a moment of profound wonder and awe in Alaska's wilderness. He was driving down the road when he came upon a number of cars pulled off to the edge of the highway. Like any of us would have done, he stopped to see what everyone was looking at. Yancey describes the scene. Against the slate gray sky, the water of an ocean inlet had a slight greenish cast, and it was being interrupted by small white caps in the water. Soon I saw that these white caps were not white caps at all, but whales. Silvery white beluga whales in a pod feeding no more than 50 feet offshore. I stood with the other onlookers for 40 minutes, listening to the rhythmic motion of the sea, following the graceful, ghostly crescents of surfacing whales. The crowd was hushed, even reverent. For just that moment, nothing else mattered. Not our dinner reservations, the trip schedule, life back home, none of it mattered. We were confronted with a scene of quiet beauty and majesty of scale. We felt small. We strangers stood together in silence until the whales moved further out. Then we climbed the bank together and got in our cars to resume our busy, ordered lives that suddenly seemed less urgent. Have you ever been captivated by a moment? Have you ever been brought to a sense of wonder? Have you ever stood somewhere, maybe it was on the edge of the ocean, you know, the ocean talks to me. It speaks to me. When I I go to the beach, it speaks to me. And many times in my life, I've, I've had encounters with God at the beach as I've walked along and I've considered the reality that I'm really small <laughs> and that's really big and that's been doing that for a long time. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, that ocean has been doing its thing. And every time I go to the ocean and I think about, I ponder, I behold the majesty of it, I'm reminded of how small I am and how great God is. It causes me to go vertical. The horizontal gaze makes me look up and be in wonder. I remember when my kids were born. I remember when my first son was born, Stephen. 
being at the hospital. And when that little guy came into the world with his eyes wide open, and he didn't cry, I'll never forget it. He came out with his eyes wide open, and I picked him up. The, the doctor actually put him in my hands first, and I held him, and I looked at him, and he was going just like this. I was absolutely stunned, amazed, in awe and wonder. And I was laughing and crying at the same time. And right there, I lifted him up before God and I dedicated him to God. It was one of those moments where I knew, wow, this little guy is a gift. <laughs> one little side note that's hilarious is we really thought we were having a girl. <laughs> we didn't get an ultrasound done. And we felt like, wow, we just have the sense we're going to have a girl. So when he came out, we both laughed out loud. Seriously, LOL, right there on the spot. Even my wife, who had just gone through like 36 hours of labor, laughed. But we were caught and captivated in a moment of wonder. And you know, I want to talk to you about wonder today. Because we're in a time of the year when we should wonder. We should be in awe. But we're so often distracted and we miss the forest or the trees all around us. You know, something about wonder is that we often lose it in this modern era of advanced technology. Think about it. We just sent a probe to Mars. It landed successfully, engaged its uh, solar panels, turned on its cameras and its sensors, and began to send us pictures back from Mars! Hello, Mars! And you know what we did? Oh yeah, been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Mars is so 1980s, 1990s, early 2000s. We're not even in awe anymore of the fact that we can send a spacecraft millions of miles across our own galaxy to a planet and then land successfully and send photos. Or how about this, how many of you got a smartphone or a tablet right now? Take it out for a minute, just hold it in your hand. Okay, yeah, just take it out and hold it in your hand. And then just curse it, and just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> Although I will tell you, these things that you're holding are really doing some terrible damage to our relationships and to our lives. But they got some positives too. But here's the thing I want you to be in wonder about. Do you know that that gadget that you hold in your hand has significantly more computing power than rooms and rooms full of computers that were used to send the first men to the moon? Do you realize that in your own lifetime, things have happened around you that are would be so astounding in past generations? I tell my wife all the time, I said, wouldn't it be cool if somebody from 150 years ago went to the grocery store with us? And we come walking up to the sliding doors, and just before we got there, I would go like this. <laughs> and that person would be like, whoa, how did you do that? In the modern era, we have learned to control things with our mind power. <laughs> think about it. We take for granted things every day in our life that would have caused past generations to wonder. And in fact, we're bored with them. And then we come to Christmas, and we see, you know, manger scenes and a little baby and Mary and Joseph and shepherds and sheep and camels.
camels and wise men and a little crash and a manger scene, like I said, and I'll take you there. We think, isn't that just sweet? So sentimental. And we don't realize that what we're looking at should cause us more than anything in history to be in awe and to wonder. Think about it. We have experienced the commercialized Jesus and lost the simplicity and the wonder of the idea that God, who is spirit and eternal, who has no boundaries, who can never be contained, who spills over infinity, that God became limited in a human baby body. The second person of the Trinity. I shouldn't say limited because he wasn't limited, but he self-limited himself in that role as a man. Think about it. You know, children, like our granddaughter Abigail, they maintain wonder. We were over in Spokane the other day, and, and they took their tree out while we were there and began to decorate it. And our two-and-a-half-year-old little granddaughter just thought it was the coolest thing ever, just you know, putting, putting um, ornaments on the tree like she was doing something really amazing. And we were laughing and having a great time, and Peggy and I just commented to each other, my wife, we just commented to each other, man, you know, kids bring back the wonder of Christmas. One of the reasons I think we as adults need children and grandchildren is because we can turn into Scrooges. We can get really raw humbuggish. I know I do. And then I'm around some kids, and they remind me, they give me the wonder and the awe, they captivate my heart. So, is this making sense to anybody? So today I want to talk about two kinds of wonder. First, wonder, the noun, a feeling of surprise mingled with admiration caused by something beautiful, unexpected, unfamiliar, or inexplicable. Something that just absolutely makes you go, wow, that is incredible. Or wonder the verb, which means desire or be curious to know something. The question in us. And what I want to address is both. I want us to look at the wonder of the birth of Jesus, and I also want to answer maybe some of our deep questions, some of our wonderings about why it's so important and why it matters. Amen? Will you go there with me? So my first point in wonder is let's wonder at the fact that Jesus was conceived by heaven's Holy Spirit. I want you to think about something that we have taken for granted as Christians, and that is that that miracle of the conception of Jesus was that he was conceived by the very Holy Spirit. Now, look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, and we'll read it together here. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, real quick aside, in Hebrew culture, a couple would be betrothed for approximately a year where they would be committed to each other, but they wouldn't live together and they wouldn't sleep together. And it would be a time where with the family, they would learn to get to know each other. Okay, it was a betrothal period. So Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. That phrase means they didn't sleep together. They were not intimate. That's what that means, okay? She was found to be with child. But if we stopped right there, that would have been a huge scandal in that time. She was found to be with child. But I want you to notice the next few words. From the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, 
resolved to divorce her quietly. So he's a good man. He's like, I don't, I, I don't want to cause her to be publicly humiliated. So I'm gonna divorce her quietly and put her aside. Then verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. By the way, the name Jesus means Jehovah or Yahweh saves. So the very name captures what he did. Now look at Luke chapter 1, verse 35. It says that the angel answered her. Now this is when Mary had the encounter with the angel Gabriel. He came down from heaven and he met her. And here's this girl probably around 16 years old. And he speaks to her. And the angel answered her because she said, How am I going to have a child? I've never been with a man. I'm a virgin. How am I going to have a child? And the angel answers her in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, if you know the history of the Bible, you know that God had helped people throughout the pages of Scripture to conceive children when they were unable to conceive naturally. People like Abraham and Sarah, they were very old. Uh, Abraham was 100 years old when his son was born. How many of you know that ain't happening? Hello. Okay, so Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Rachel, Elkanah and Hannah, all of these people had difficulty conceiving, and the Lord touched them, and, and many times the scripture uses the term, opened her womb and gave them the ability to conceive when they had not been able to conceive. But this, this incident, however, is completely different. Because those children were conceived by the normal relations between a man and a woman. But this particular child was conceived by the Holy Spirit within the womb of Mary. This was a new kind of conception. This was the kind of conception that all you could do is stand back and wonder. And here's some questions. I wonder. These are some of the things I wondered when I was a new Christian. I wondered, why is Holy Spirit conception important? Why was it important that the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in the womb of Mary? Number one, Jesus had to be conceived by the Holy Spirit because healing DNA and blood are tainted by original sin. Our Savior couldn't save us if he had the same fallen humanity that we have. Okay, so God had to do a miraculous work in the womb of Mary to bring about a conception that was unlike any conception in human history. Secondly, Jesus had to be conceived by the Holy Spirit because he is divine. He's fully God and fully man in one. Not 50-50, not half God, half man, fully God, fully man. That's what we believe as Christians. That's what the scripture teaches us. And that takes me to the second point to wonder about. Wonder at the fact that Jesus was conceived and born of a virgin woman. Now think about this one. I, I told people in the first service, stick this in your pipe and really smoke it. I'm serious. Really consider the implications. Don't let your familiarity with the story cause you to uh, not recognize its significance. Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Look what it says here. It says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And this caused me to ask questions like the last question. I wonder, why did Mary have to be a virgin? Why did Mary have to be a virgin? See, Jesus had to be conceived of the Holy Spirit in a virgin woman so there could be no question about his divinity. If Mary had already been married, or if she had had other children before Jesus, there would have always been questions as to whether the child conceived in her was from the Holy Spirit or from Joseph. Some have tried to minimize the virgin birth. Some have tried to say, well, the Old Testament Hebrew word for virgin birth, which is true, the Old Testament Hebrew word for virgin is, is actually young woman. But what you have to understand is though young woman and virgin is interchangeably used throughout the Old Testament, in the New Testament word, the Greek word for virgin, which is translated in the New Testament, it shows us clearly that she had never been with a man, and that was her own confession to the angel. How can I have a child? I've never been with a man. We know what been with a man means here, right? Do, do, we, do we need to have a verse in these moment here? I hope not. Okay, so what we see in this particular text is something really unique in human history. We see something that's never been done before. This word virgin here, though it can be translated young woman, in Hebrew culture, always spoke of a young woman who was a virgin. And if she wasn't a virgin, she would have been scandalized and put outside the community. And even at, and there was a time in the history when she could have lost her life for it. So think about it. I know some of you right now are like, wow, that's terrible, that's oppressive. Well, yeah, maybe it is, but here's the reality. It's the way it was, and it's the way the world approached things. And so, again, this is a whole new kind of human being. Virgins don't have babies. The birth of Jesus demonstrates for us the reality that heaven still intervenes in human affairs, and that the natural laws of human reproduction are subject to God and his sovereign rule. Jesus is the exceptional and one and only virgin conceived man. Wonder. You know what I love about it? It's real. It's real. One of the reasons that the gospel and one of the reasons that the story of the Bible makes so much sense to me is when I look at the Bible, when I go from Genesis to Revelation, and I read everything in between, and I look at the story, I don't see anything being sugarcoated. I don't see the story of man's evil wickedness being sugarcoated. I don't see cover-up going on. I see God showing us who we really are over and over again, and then showing us who he really is. You know, if, if you ever get this idea that the Bible is some kind of sanitized, nice little storybook, you're going to be shocked. You're going to be in shock and awe when you start reading it. Just read the one, the first book of the Bible. Read Genesis. And throughout Genesis, you'll find yourself going, what in the world? What the heck? What? 
you, you'll be blown away. You'll be blown away at the human condition and the reality of sin and the reality of evil and the reality of selfishness. And yet in it all, the mysterious, loving, gracious redemption of God coming through, weaving himself all through the story and again and again intervening in human affairs when we're nothing but a bunch of rebels. That's the story. The Bible's not a story. Some people take the Bible wrongly as a story of a bunch of good people. Just read the Bible. You're not going to find it. There's a few here and there that you kind of go, wow, that person was pretty accessible. The rest of them are just like you and I. Amen? Amen. All right. So Jesus is exceptional. Number three, wonder. Jesus' birth was heralded by a heavenly star. Now, again, we have sentimentalized this story. We get these little pictures, you know, the star, and, you know, these, these wise men, we call them the three kings. They were kings, and there were more than three, likely. Did you know the Bible never says there's three? Did you know they're never called kings? You see what we've done? We've kind of Hollywoodized the story a bit. And so we see these pictures of the star, and these guys are on their camels, and they're going along, and they all got their little boxes of gifts, and you think, that's so precious. Right? And that's not the way the story unfolded at all. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and verses 9 and 10. Verse 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and had come to worship him. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You know, many ancient mythologies and many ancient legends have stories of the heavens and the stars heralding the birth or the activity of a god. But none actually record a step-by-step -step narrative of an actual star appearing and guiding people to the birth of God in the flesh. The ancient Roman world often tried to tie the birth of Caesar to the appearance of stars, comets, or the alignments of planets. You want to hear a little interesting aside? The word gospel, where we get good news, in its original context was not a religious word. It was a secular word that was used to describe the birth of a king or a dignitary. And so what would happen in the ancient Roman world is when a new Caesar was born or a new, a new child was born who was heir to the throne, they would publish what they called a gospel. Did you know that? They would publish a gospel, and they would usually say, you know, great Augustus, great Augustus has been born this day in Rome to the accompaniment of, of you know, a, a meteor shower, and they would call that stars falling from the sky, and great signs in the heavens, and signs throughout the empire, and they would give these, these things to heralds who would go out to every part of the Roman Empire, and they would proclaim this written gospel of the birth of a king, and all the signs that were connected to it. So the authors... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the authors of the Gospels were following a common methodology of the time in proclaiming the birth of a king. Well, what's beautiful here is an actual star arose in the sky and guided these men from the east, from what was likely Babylon, Medo-Persia, somewhere around Iran, modern-day Iran or Iraq. They came from there. 
Let me see here. Blah, blah, blah. Yes. It was a common idea in the ancient world to have activity in the heavens relate to activity on earth. God met the pagan world where they were and showed them that Jesus was the Savior of all the different peoples on earth by giving them a sign in the heavens. Jesus is God of the observant religious Jews and the seeking pagans. And he met them right where they were. He met them right in their stargazing. He met them right in their checking out their horoscopes, as it were. As they looked to their horoscopes, as they looked to pagan forms to try to discern their futures and what was going on on earth, God met them and brought the truth to them in the midst of their error. And we might ask you, it might, might cause you to ask, I wonder why did God use a star to guard the Magi? Because he meets us right where we are. These were priests of an ancient religion, probably Zoroastrianism. Now, we don't know that for sure. They might have been the heirs of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They might have been part of a cadre like that, of those who looked to the stars, and they might have even had a copy of the Jewish scriptures along with that, and, and put all of these things together and come up with this idea that something really profound was happening. A king was being born. But they weren't Jews. They weren't the believers of that time. And here's what I want to say to you. Maybe you're here today and you have family members or friends, or you might even be here and you're into all kinds of stuff. Maybe you're into Wicca, or you're into, you know, stargazing, or you're into kind of New Age stuff, or, or you know, family members or friends that are, and you're really concerned for them. You should be. And you're, you're like, man, you know, gosh, they need to get out of that. Yeah, I agree with that. But here's the beauty. Here's the beauty. You pray for them. And you pray, God, I pray you use all of the stuff out there. I pray you use the heavens. I pray you use creation. I pray you use people. Send believers everywhere they go. I pray, Lord, that everywhere they turn, they would come face to face with the uniqueness of Jesus Christ and the fact that he died on a Roman cross for their sin and rose from the dead. And he's different than the New Age betrayers and false messiahs. And he's different from all the stargazing. He's different from the connection to Wicca and the earth and the cycles of the earth and creation and the moon and the heavens. He's different because he stands alone. He's the fulfillment of all of those things that people are searching for. He's the deepest hunger in the human heart. Oh God, use it all, but bring them to Jesus. Amen. Yeah. And that gets me to the last point, wonder. We wonder that Jesus is Emmanuel. God with and this is the most profound truth here. Uh, Matthew 1, 23, look at the second part of the verse. It says, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now you say, wait a minute, I thought his name was Jesus. And here he's called Emmanuel. Which is it? It's both. Because in the Hebrew culture, people were given many names or titles. And God especially was given many names and titles. You know how many names God has? Right? Have you ever noticed in the Bible that the number of places is Lord or God? Well, if you translate those words into the Hebrew language, there are many, many more words than just Lord or God. There's Yahweh. That's the one true God, right? And there's El Shaddai, El Elyon, Adonai. These are all names of God in the Old Testament. But when we see them translated in English, it just says God. We have to understand Jesus is called Jesus because he'll save his people from their sin. But one of his titles is Emmanuel, which is God is with us. 
And really, this is the most powerful and profound thought yet. God is with us in the coming of Jesus. His title, his nature, and his name means that God has come to us in human form. The loss of fellowship and connection we have with God because of our own sin can now be bridged through the one who is God with us. Now, now let me bring it home. Let me apply it to your life. The ultimate loneliness and alienation we often feel as human beings, and we can't quite put it into words, can be healed and restored through a man who understands us, yet is above us as God. Let's talk about this for a minute. I know as a human being that there are times I have something inside of me that can't be scratched. I have a deep itch in me that can't be scratched by my wife, by my children, by success, by money, by titles, by degrees, by you know being a famous person, being a star. I mean, we live at a time when everybody wants to have that you know, 15 minutes of fame. Everybody's trying to get that Instagram account that has thousands of followers, right? You're trying to be noticed on YouTube. We're all looking for something to be scratched. We're looking for people, relationships with people, male-female stuff, other, other types of relationships, friendship. We're looking for a person to satisfy us. We're looking for a place to satisfy us. We're hungry and thirsty to find something that will deal with the deep alienation and the loneliness we all feel at different times. I remember there was a time in our marriage when, when I, I realized one day that I was expecting things from my wife that only God could give me. And it came in like a, it was a crash. Wow. Only God will ever be able to give me that. Only God can meet that alienation because all of us feel it. Look, I don't care how popular, how cool you are, how much money you've got, how successful you are. There are going to be times in life when you, when you're left with yourself, you might have a crowd around you, but something inside of you is going to ache. Something inside you is going to hurt. Something inside of you is going to feel like nobody gets me. Nobody gets it. And let me tell you what that is. A God-shaped hole. I'm sorry. There's something inside human beings. C.S. Lewis said, we were made to be fueled by God. God is the only one that can fuel us. And so what will happen is you'll put expectations upon people. You'll put expectations on relationships. You'll put expectations upon your workplace. You'll put expectations on, on the place you live. You'll put expectations on your church that are impossible for those places, those institutions, or those people to ever meet. They will always fail. They will always fall short because you were created for God. Are you kidding me? Why do you think we're so addicted? In the age that we live. Why do you think we're such an addicted people? Why do you think we're looking here and there for something that's going to scratch our itch? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, whatever it is. We're looking for something to plug in. But we are empty and broken, and we need God. And that's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is 
God came to us in the person of his son and met us right where we live. Why? So we can forever know Emmanuel. God is with us. And even more than that, he then gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit doesn't just live around us and upon us and above us and below us and beside us and behind us. He lives within us and heals the very soul of a human being. So it's actually possible. In fact, it's probable during those times in your life when you're just like, I need a person, I need a relationship, I, I need a sexual relationship, I need a drug, I need a substance, I, I need success, I need to, it's, it's probably that you don't need any of that. That you need to repent, turn away from the things that have kept you bound, and keep becoming idols in your life. Let me tell you something, human beings are amazing idol worshippers, And we can make idols of anything. And some of the very things that you're looking to scratch that itch in you have become an idol in your life, and they will always let you down and always disappoint you. And until you learn to make Jesus Christ your inheritance, your everything, your all in all, and you realize that he's the greatest pleasure and joy, and he'll use people, he'll use community, he'll use gifts from him, he'll use all those things to manifest himself to you. But the, the goal is not to get caught up in the thing, not to get caught up in the object, but to get caught up in the source and its gift. That's where the rich gets scratched. And the satisfaction comes. And life is renewed. Does that make sense? Am I talking to anybody? I'm almost done. I, 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 gotta, I gotta land well. I don't want to crash this plane. I'm landing. Henry Bosch says this you know, Socrates taught for 40 years, Plato for 50, Aristotle for 40, and Jesus for only three. Yet the influence of Jesus' three-year ministry infinitely transcends the impact left by the combined 130 years of teaching from these men who were among the greatest philosophers of all the ancient world. Jesus painted no pictures. You ever notice that? You don't have any paintings from Jesus. Yet some of the finest paintings of Raphael, Michelangelo, and Leonardo da Vinci received their inspiration from him. Jesus wrote no poetry, but Dante, Milton, and scores of the world's greatest poets were inspired by him. Jesus composed no music. Still, Hayden, Handel, Beethoven, Bach, and Mendelssohn reached their highest perfection of melody in the hymns, symphonies, and oratories they composed in his praise. Every sphere of human greatness has been enriched by this humble carpenter of Nazareth. Jesus stands alone at the top of history, and our only response is we must bow in the one who grace. We must bow and look at him in his awe. And it brings us back to this time. We are celebrating the idea that God came and enfleshed himself in a body and became our closest friend. Wow. Our Savior and our Redeemer. So why did he have to be with us to say this? I wonder, why did he have to be with us to say this? Jesus as Emmanuel had to come because we're powerless to get to God. We're powerless to reconcile with him because of our sin. Man-made religion says this. Do these things, jump through these hoops, do these special um, sacrifices or these special, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Can you help me out here? Yeah. These special actions, these special religious duties. Do these things. Keep these rules. Keep these laws. And maybe you'll get to God. And the gospel says, no, none of that works ever. You can't get to me. I'm holy and perfect and transcendent and above you. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to move to you. 
I'm going to work. I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you, and I'm going to lift you up from the depths of sin and death and judgment, and I'm going to lift you to the highest places in Christ Jesus. And I'm going to cleanse you and wash you and make you new, and I'm going to put the very spirit of my son inside of you, and I'm going to transform you from the inside out and change your very character. I'm going to give you very nature and change you from the inside out, and it's not going to be your efforts given to me. It's going to be me coming and doing the whole work inside of you and lifting you up and making you the men and the women you were created to be. My image bearers, that's what the gospel does. That's what Jesus does. Amen. Come on. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity came to us and rescued us from sin by dying in our place on a Roman cross. He powered, he conquered the power of Satan over us, released us from sin and death. He came to be close to us and to demonstrate the great love that God has for us. He did it all for love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him will not perish. The word means come to destruction. Amen. But be saved. That's the good news. Jesus is Emmanuel. God is with us. Stand in awe and wonder. And turn to him today and experience his near presence and his saving power. This is your day. This is your time. Amen.